Oh, how beautiful and precious it is to hear God's people sing God's praises. Go ahead and be seated. Again, turn with me in your Bibles now to 2 Samuel chapter 1. 2 Samuel chapter 1. Starting off, really, the first narrative that takes place is in verses 1 through 16. Um, but what we're going to aim to do today, really that could be taken in, in, in one sermon, but what we're going to aim to do today is give us a little bit of an introduction into 1 Samuel and then just, just begin to touch on the first narrative we find that we'll read today. Um, so hopefully next week's sermon won't be as long, right? Does that sound okay to you guys? No? Okay. You know that's not the case. All right. Uh, so 2 Samuel, we'll still read verses uh, 1 through 16 of 2 Samuel chapter 1. Um, if you would, and if you're able, I know we do a lot of standing up and sitting down here. Could you stand for the reading of God's word, honoring the fact that God himself has spoken to us through this, his divine, precious, and errant word. 2 Samuel chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Now it came to pass after the death of Saul when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites. And David had stayed two days in Ziklag. On the third day, behold, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. Remind you of anything? So it was when he came to David that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. And David said to him, where have you come from? And so he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. Then David said to him, how did the matter go? Please tell me. And he answered, The people have fled from the battle. Many of the people are fallen and dead. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. So David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? Then the young man who told him said, As I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, there was Saul leaning on a spear. And indeed the chariots and horsemen's, uh, horsemen followed hard after him. Now when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? And so I answered him, I am an Amalekite. He said to me again, Please stand over me and kill me, for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. So I stood over him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm, and have brought them here to my Lord. Therefore David took hold of his own clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son. For the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Then David said to the young man who told him, Where are you from? And he answered, I'm the son of an alien, an Amalekite. So David said to him, How was it you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go near and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. So David said to him, Your blood is on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word. Oh, gracious Father, we do give you thanks already for attending this meeting this morning with power. Lord, we thank you and give you thanks for the proclamation of your word, the way it addresses your people, the way it addresses all people, calling them to faith and repentance in your Son, and the way it strengthens and edifies those who are already in Christ Jesus. Father, we ask for your help this morning as we come to hear the preaching of your word. Would you pour out your spirit among us? 
Would you bring conviction of sin in our hearts? Would you bind up the weak? Would you encourage those who are disheartened and struggling in their faith? Would you cause us all once again to see the beauty of your son, the beauty of King Jesus, that our faith, faith may be increased and our love might abound more and more. We pray this for Jesus and in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Go ahead and, and you can be seated. So what do David, Saul, and an Amalekite have in common? Well, we're going to find out this morning. I was actually tempted to say David, Saul, and an Amalekite all walked into a bar, but that seemed inappropriate for a Southern Baptist church, so I decided not to say that. Um, the big idea of this morning's sermon, and really this will be the main idea for next, the next two weeks. We'll have the same idea here. There are different ways you could say this, but really the big idea for the next two weeks in verses 1 through 16 is simply this. Don't mess with the Lord's anointed. Don't mess with the Lord's anointed. Really what we see here in verses 1 through 16 is the righteousness of King David clearly depicted in very clear terms. But there's more. We also actually see a picture of the gospel as we see the lives of Saul and Amalekai and David are intertwined in such a way that they lead us to Christ. And in order to see that, however, of course, we've got to see where we are in the story, right? So what I need to do is I need to give you a quick 60-second recap of biblical history in the next 5 to 10 minutes, okay? I'm a theologian, not a mathematician. Uh, but... I'm doing this because we know not only are we in 2 Samuel and therefore we know that there's a 1 Samuel, right? But there are a couple more parts of the story that must take place before we enter into this one. We need to remember where we are in the course of redemptive history. This narrative fits a larger narrative. And if you don't know the larger narrative, it is really hard for you to understand the smaller narrative. In fact, I would argue that you can't. I would argue that someone can't open their Bible, take it outside, do, do the thing where you let the wind blow and tell you what to read. Don't do that. That's foolishness. But, but if just if say you did that and it turned to 2 Samuel chapter 1 and you just read 2 Samuel chapter 1 verses 1 through 16, I would argue that if you said, oh, I read this now and I completely understand it, that that's not true. You can't understand it. You won't understand it without the fuller picture. And so bear with me just a moment as we remember where we are. I'm going to give you really a brief overview of the larger narrative. A brief overview of this larger narrative. Now, I won't start in the garden, which is my normal habit. We'll pick up with Israel as the people group who are the physical descendants of Abraham. Abraham being that man that was called out of the land of Ur and received the promise of God. Received the promise first given in the garden. Okay, I did go there. But then proclaimed in greater clarity. Given to Abraham and his seed, his children. Well, if you fast forward a couple hundred, uh, a couple, yeah, 430 years or so, you have God redeeming the children of Abraham from Egypt and making them a great nation at Mount Sinai through a covenant. You fast forward another several decades and you've got the leadership of Joshua bringing the people into the promised land that is Israel. Under the leadership of Joshua, Israel receives all the physical promises that were actually spoken to Abraham. 
That is, they are a great many people, as many as the stars in the sky. They've received the promised land. It's now theirs, and God is dwelling with them in their midst. But as we know, and we're well aware, because of that covenant made at Mount Sinai, the state of affairs is conditional. They would only continue to possess the promised land, continue to enjoy its fruitfulness, and continue to experience the peace that God promises if they obey the law of the covenant. And of course, we know they don't. In fact, the book of Judges records for us how Israel steadily declined and became as wicked as the nations that surrounded them. And yet, the Lord remained faithful to his primary and spiritual promise to Abraham. That he would bless the whole world, not just one, but the whole world through the promised seed of Israel. Samuel opens during the days of the judges. So Israel is in the promised land, but they are living amidst great darkness and wickedness. In fact, as our memory verse states at the end of the book of Judges, our memory verse is the very last verse in the book of Judges. It says in Judges 21, 25, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And not only that, in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1, it begins with these very daunting, haunting words that says, And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. See, everyone was continuing to do what was right in their own eyes, including the priest. The priests who were to be the mediators of this special covenant relationship between God and his People Instead, they begin using the position of priest for their own glory. Speaking specifically of Eli and his sons. His sons specifically sinning against God and Eli quite literally turning a blind eye to the work of his sons. Because of that, what we read in 1 Samuel chapter 4 is that Israel endures a great defeat at the hand of the Philistines. This is going to be important as we consider our text here today. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, Israel is routed by the Philistines and the glory of Israel being the Ark of the Covenant, symbolizing the very presence of God with them, is now taken into exile, taken into the camp of the Philistines. And if you remember, that's where the Lord single-handedly whoops the butts of the Philistines before coming back to Israel. I love that story there in 1 Samuel chapter 6, right? It's during these days as well that the Lord was raising up a final judge, a judge by the name of Samuel, who also serves as priest. He is priest, he is judge, and he is prophet in the land of Israel. Through Samuel, the word of the Lord returns. Samuel actually ends up rescuing and delivering Israel in their moment of trial in chapter 7, interceding on their behalf. And so the Lord answers and Israel has a great victory over the Philistines, those who were previously the ones who defeated them. Israel responds in chapter 8 after that great defeat and deliverance from God by asking for a king like the king of the nations. That's their response. In that, Israel rejects not Samuel. The Lord makes that clear in 1 Samuel chapter 8. They didn't reject Samuel. They rejected the Lord himself who is their king. And so the Lord gives them what they asked for and Saul is anointed king. He is everything the Lord said a king like the nations would be. He's paranoid. As we see in his story unfold in 1 Samuel, he is power hungry. He is unfaithful. He is violent. And in the end, 
Saul rejects the word of the Lord. And so the Lord rejects him from being king over Israel. But remember, the Lord had made a promise to his people. It was a promise first spoken in Genesis 3, chapter 15, reiterated at various times throughout the course of redemptive history. And so even though, get this, even though no one ever asked God for it, he raises up a king after his own heart. You know, it's important to note, nowhere does it speak of anyone asking the Lord for a king who is righteous and just. Do you notice that? They just want a king like the nations. Why? Because they want a king who will fight their battles for them. So they say with their own lips. They testify against themselves. They act out of fear, calling for chariots and horsemen. But because the Lord is good and he is kind and he is ever so faithful, he gives them something they never asked for, a king after his own heart. And we know that, of course, to be David. The rest of 1 Samuel will record for us Saul's descent into darkness and David's ascent to the throne through his own humiliation and exile. 1 Samuel ends with David's deliverance from blood, guilt, and death. In 1 Samuel 29, he's marching out with the Philistines to fight against Israel and he's really caught on the horns of a dilemma here. Is he going to fight the Philistines and therefore fight against God's people? Or is he going to attempt to fight against the Philistines and die at their hands? Well, the Lord actually delivers him from ever having to make that decision. And then in chapter 30, he becomes the deliverer. As he goes after the Amalekites who had kidnapped his family. He defeats them. He routes them handedly and recovers everyone and everything taken plus some. He returns bearing gifts for those left behind and gifts for the men of Judah. A triumphant king. Of course, on the outside of those two chapters... We see Saul who seeks a necromancer and receives a death sentence. That death sentence is executed in 1 Samuel 31. And that's where we pick up in 2 Samuel. Was that 5 to 10 minutes? Hope so. We got it? Clear as mud? Good. 2 Samuel chapter 1 then we find opening with these words. Now it came to pass after the death of Saul... Again, what we're going to see here in this first narrative is a true king coming to the forefront, acting in righteousness and justice. We're going to take, again, two weeks to go through this report, but I want to start by just looking at the timing of this report. I want to look at the timing of the report. The first, uh, actually, the report is going to give us, this narrative is going to give us three timing indicators. See if you can pick them out with me. The first is what we just read after the death of Saul. So now it came to pass after the death of Saul. That gives us a time indicator. It gives us something we need to know. And actually this time indicator is significant for two reasons. Two reasons. On the face of it, it's significant because it is a fulfillment of the word of God spoken against Saul. I want you to hear this. This is a fulfillment of the word of God spoken against Saul. Friends, we're reminded throughout the scriptures that God's word is inexorable. That is, it always does what it says it's going to do. Once God's word is spoken, it comes to bear. Now, certainly we know the Lord speaks in a way that warns God's people, leaving room for their repentance. But this judgment against Saul, it was definitive. 
The kingdom was being taken from him. And in 1 Samuel chapter 28, his death is declared. Why? Why is Saul's death declared? Well, back in 1 Samuel 15, 23, we read this. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. You get that? But Saul did not, however, after hearing this word of the Lord spoken by the prophet Samuel, immediately say, okay, here's my throne, here's my crown, here's my armlets, just point me to the next guy, I will deliver it personally to him. In fact, I will be his armor bearer, I will serve him myself. No, that's not how he responds to the word of the Lord. Instead, what he seeks to do is he seeks to destroy his very rival, his neighbor who is better than him. In fact, he's even willing to put to death an entire city of priests, their wives, children, and everything living in it just because they seem to side with David. See, nothing but death was going to wrest the crown from Saul's hand. Church family, I think there's a point of application here worth us meditating on. Saul, hear me, was addressed by the word of the Lord. His sin and his rejection were made clear. There was opportunity there for true repentance because we know that the Lord is a merciful God, don't we? We know how he would have responded to true, genuine, sincere repentance. But, but sin is often like that, isn't it? As we're confronted with sin, the temptation within the human heart is always to hold on to it, to hide it, and even feign repentance as Saul does in 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel 15, 25 says, Saul's response to hearing that he's been rejected is, Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. Or I can give you the appearance of repentance and acceptance. There's always a temptation to hold on tighter and sink deeper into our own sin. And Saul's life reveals that exact pattern. Strike me if this sounds familiar. The Lord may remove some idol from your life. And instead of accepting the Lord's kind and loving discipline, you squander your time looking for what you felt you've lost. Plotting on how to get it back or seeking, learning how to replace it. See, Saul should have set out and looked for his neighbor that was better than him. He should have cried out and asked for forgiveness. Saul should have relinquished the throne. Instead, he pledged to kill his neighbor by offering him the end of the spear. So friends, learn from Saul's failure. This is the nature of sin. It is never satisfied. It will always lead you further down the road of destruction. Death is always what works in you and death is where it will lead you. Death will be your eternal end if you do finally reject the word of the Lord, cling to your worthless idols and pretend that you are king of your own life when God has declared that you are not. Let me encourage you. If this is you and you have not, cry out to the Lord. Ask for forgiveness. Be freed from the tyranny of sin while there is still time to bring light to that which is dark in you. But you see, there's another reason why the death of Saul is significant here. And not only does it remind us that the Lord has spoken the word of judgment against Saul that's now been executed, that has come to pass, but he was put to death just as the Lord had said. But 
Also, the second reason this is significant is because it is a literary cue. I know that has to be the least exciting point in preaching history, right? Um, But it is significant because it is a literary cue. See, now it came to pass after the death of Saul. It refers to or echoes the use of this phrase several times. Do you know how the book of Joshua begins? It begins by saying, after the death of Moses. You want to know how the book of Judges begins? It begins by saying, after the death of Joshua. After the death of Saul is what we encounter here. And so what do we see? We see we're at an important progression in the story of redemptive history. There's a transition being made here, just as there was a transition between Moses and Joshua. Moses not making it to the promised land, and Joshua leading God's people into the promised land. The reception of those physical temporary promises as they received them. So also, after the death of Joshua, it marked a transition from the high point of Joshua into the dark days of the book of Judges. That descent of Israel, they became more and more like the nations they had dispossessed. So the question becomes then, after the death of Saul, what type of transition is this? Is this a new progression towards a greater height? Or are we descending even further yet? Actually, the narrative itself is going to expand this question, and it's going to hinge on this. How is David going to respond to the news he's about to receive? How is David going to respond to this particular news? There's one other time indicator I, I want to look at other than the, the two other actually that I want to look at other than the death of Saul. The second one is, is this. When David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites. That's the second time indicator. And that's not insignificant. I know that you know that every word of God is not insignificant. But specifically this. When David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites. The reader is reminded that David just acted the part of the great deliverer. We reviewed that a moment ago. In 1 Samuel 30. David, listen. David was kind to the sojourner. The Egyptian who was left behind. He was just to the enemies of God as he struck down the Amalekites. And he was righteous to his brothers as the Lord had commanded. And I want you to see this. There are scriptural references to all of these things. David was acting in accord with what the word of the Lord had already spoken. For instance, he was kind to the sojourner, the Egyptian. Look at Deuteronomy 23 verse 7 with me. It says clearly, you shall not abhor an Edomite for he is your brother. You shall not abhor an Egyptian because you are an alien in his land. Or in regards to the slaughter of the Amalekites. Look at what the word of the Lord says in Deuteronomy 25, 17. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt. How he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks. All the stragglers at your rear when you were tired and weary. And he did not fear God. Therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around. In the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance. That you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. He's obeying God. And then, of course, by dividing the plunder. Look at Numbers 31, 27. And divide the plunder into two parts between those who took part in the war, who went out to battle, and all the congregation. This is in regards to those who are left behind. They will receive the same amount as the ones who go out in battle. Why? Because this battle ultimately belongs to the Lord. And so David is actually acting here in accord with God's word. He's not rejecting the word of the Lord. 
When David returned from striking down the Amalekites, it's not simply a time indicator. It's a reminder that David is a king after God's own heart. And so a careful reader will already have our answer to some extent of how David is going to respond to the very outset of this narrative. Verse 2 starts with a third time indicator, and it's this. On the third day. This phrase carries more weight than simply the indication of a specific day, though it is very much that also. Throughout 1 Samuel, the phrases on the third day and in the morning, they denoted significant events often connected with deliverance. For instance, in 1 Samuel chapter 20, David delivered Jonathan on the third day from the hand of his father. In chapter 30, David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, which of course sets up the deliverance of everything and everyone captured by the Amalekites. Here, the report that is about to be received, which will declare the final deliverance of David from Saul, just as the Lord has promised. And we know, of course, that there's a greater deliverance even that occurred on the third day. Don't we, church? A deliverance of God's people from their sin as Jesus was resurrected from the grave, showing that he had conquered our biggest sin, death, and had delivered all of his children from it. All right, that's the timing of the report, but I also want to, before we leave, almost done, introduce you to the messenger of this report. I really want you to try your best to keep this narrative at hand for next week. I really wanted to preach this whole thing, but as you can tell, it would be really long. So the messenger of the report is introduced to us in verses 2 and 3. Look at this. He's a nameless man. Uh, it's actually interesting that he is a man first, but then he becomes a young man, a lad most likely denoting or communicating the fact that he is naive in what he is about to attempt to do or what he's about to attempt to gain by doing it. The shift recurs right at the point that David begins in verse 5 to inquire of the man about how he knows that Saul is dead. He moves from being a man to a young man, a lad, simple maybe, naive. Bless his little heart, we would say. In addition... This no-named man, naive or simple, shows up just like the messenger who carried the report of Israel's last great defeat in 1 Samuel 4. Did you notice that? We mentioned it a moment ago. At the beginning of 1 Samuel, we have this great defeat of Israel by the Philistines where the glory of Israel is taken out of Israel. Glory of Israel, again, referring to the presence of the Lord himself. And so what happens after the defeat? We have a man who comes to where Eli is in the city. His clothes have been torn and there's dirt on his head also. He comes in with the same appearance. Here, Israel lost its head, her king, and according to what we see in the rest of chapter 1, her glory. Just as the glory of the Lord departed Israel in 1 Samuel 4, so now their glory was slain on the heights. Back in 1 Samuel 4, what's being worked out there is the judgment that falls on the house of Eli. Because his two sons had been stealing from the Lord himself. They were taking of those sacrifices and glorifying in themselves in doing so. So you've got the judgment spoken against the house of Eli. And in chapter 4, that judgment falls as both sons die in a single day. And Eli himself, upon hearing the news, falls back and dies under the whole weight of his grief. It just crushes him and he dies. One commentator explains the significance of this connection between 1 Samuel 4 and 2 Samuel 1 this way. The author of Samuel established a deliberate connection between the two stories in order to set up an analogy between the fates of Saul's house and of Eli's. 
The comparison indicates that there's a clear rule of law which connects a leader's conduct with his fate and the fate of his house. A degenerate leader, whether it is himself who has sinned or his sons, will ultimately be deposed or come to a tragic end. Just as Eli and his sons die on the same day, and so do Saul and his. Think about this. So Eli and his sons specifically sinning against the Lord. And Eli falling or failing or refusing to rebuke them as he ought in order to honor the Lord. They fall under judgment and their house is removed. Sound familiar? So also Saul. But a righteous leader would ultimately be exalted for his obedience. So a degenerate leader, whether it is himself who has sinned or his sons, will ultimately be disposed. A righteous leader will be exalted by the Lord. And let me tell you why this is significant. We, we often forget this in the course of historical narrative. When we're reading the Old Testament, we're always looking for types of Christ, pictures of Christ, right? Uh, David clearly being a type or picture of Christ. But I think we tend to forget that Antichrist also point to Christ. And of course, what I mean by Antichrist are those people in history who actually are recorded as acting in a diametrically opposite position of what we would expect from a righteous man of God. They also help us understand or gain clarity on who the Messiah will be. So Saul's failure sheds light on where the Messiah must be successful. This works in the immediate context as Saul serves as a contrast of David himself, but it also works ultimately as Saul serves as a contrast to Jesus Christ. See, Saul rejected the word of the Lord, but Jesus only spoke what he heard from his father. He delighted in doing the will of his father. Saul lied in order to keep his kingship, killing anyone who deposes rule. Jesus sat aside his royal prerogative in order to die for those who oppose his rule, being us. Saul trusted in his spear while Jesus entrusted himself to him who judges justly. We need to recognize this as we study Old Testament narrative. Friends, 2 Samuel is ultimately about Jesus. The Old Testament is ultimately about Jesus. And I cannot wait until next week where we will see Jesus clearly in this story, verses 1 through 16. How in the world do we see Jesus and this messenger coming and being killed for putting his hand out on the Lord against the, against the Lord's anointed? I can't wait to show you, and I hope you see it. But in the meantime, I really just want to leave you with one final encouragement this morning. It's this. It's important that you just don't sit and listen. Here's, I, I want you to sit and listen, obviously, but, but part of what we're doing here, friends, hear me, part of what we're doing is we're learning how to read our Bibles. And so as we are moving through this text, you're actually picking up tools that you can use throughout the week as you go to the Word of God. If you're just listening, waiting for the primary points, thinking you're just going to tuck those away and use those later, I mean, yeah, yeah do that. Friends, let me encourage you, listen carefully. Keep your eyes on the text. Follow me as we go through it and attempt to understand why I'm saying these things. In fact, if I'm saying something and you don't see how it connects to the text, you need to ask me afterwards. And if I can't explain it to you, reject it. <laughs> Clear? Okay, I'm going to close just by saying one thing. 
even in these three verses, it's clear that the analogy between Eli's house and Saul's house, it serves to remind us one thing. Jesus's house is sure. Jesus's house has been established forever. And I don't know about you, but I'm thankful that our leader, our head, our king has been exalted forever. And he has received a kingdom that will never, ever end. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this, your word. Lord, many of us can so identify with Saul. Lord, when sin is revealed, our inclination is often to hold on to it even tighter. Father, this is the mark of a true Christian. A true Christian truly repents of sin. A true Christian is reminded and acts like he is not king when God has declared him not king. And that's all of us, Father, because this is a picture that Jesus is ultimately king. He is the only true king. And yet so many of us are born like Saul thinking that we are king, that we know better than him. Father, would you help us live that rightly? Would you help us that when we're confronted with sin, that we would confess it and truly, genuinely, sincerely repent it, lest death get hold of us as well? Father, we pray that you'd help us and encourage us to have our eyes on the scripture. Lord, we know that in this time and particularly what we're walking through right now, there's so many temptations to go look at all sorts of things to give us comfort. Would you remind us that there's only one true comfort? It's your spirit, your spirit speaking through your word. Would you drive us even more to the scriptures during this time? May we not therefore seek to find our comfort in the things of this world because if this time reminds us of anything, this world is flailing, it is broken, it is marred, but you have promised to redeem all things. So Lord, help us to trust you and rest you. And we thank you for this encouragement we find. In, in this little introduction sermon. Lord, be with us now as we help to apply these truths. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.